Amen. Amen. You guys are some of the friendliest people in the church I've ever seen. I gotta tell you, that's yeah. You must love your church a lot. You must love your pastor even more. <laughs> Let's get to the word of God this morning. Luke chapter 13, verse 22. And I'm going to preach this morning what I believe is one of the most important messages you'll ever hear in this church. A message that's not really taught that much in churches anymore. As we continue part three of our health series, Luke chapter 13, verse 22 through 23. The word of God says, And he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? Are there few who are saved? Let's pray. Father, I just pray in Jesus' name that you would speak to us this morning the most important message this church will ever hear. It's a message that will go on for all eternity. So, Father, use me. Open our hearts, our ears, and our eyes to see. Give us all understanding and security in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. As we get into this word, Jesus is going through... <clears throat> From town to town, he's going from villages to villages. He's teaching, he's doing miracles. And as I read the stories of Jesus here, most likely this was during the time of Passover. That's why he's going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a major city. There's a lot going on. And if you look at the life of Jesus at this moment, there's one way you can describe it, and that's busy. He's busy. Realize that Jesus has three years to change the world. He has three years through 12 men to preach the gospel and establish these men to start the church. He has a lot going on. He has crowds following him. He has people wanting his attention. He's busy. But in the midst of the busyness, as crowds gathered and were walking with him, we don't know who it was. We don't know who he or she was, but someone in the crowd, maybe the disciple, maybe a follower of Jesus, but someone asked Jesus a powerful question. Will few people be saved? And what grabbed my attention about this passage is that in the midst of busyness, in the midst of a heavy agenda and schedule with a lot going on, In the midst of all the noise and the chaos, someone in the crowd has death and eternity and heaven in mind. Someone is thinking about eternity. That person that asked that question most likely is thinking about eternity and heaven and hell and death. That person is not thinking about everything they have to do. That person is not thinking about everything that has to do with the scheduling and all the busyness and all the chores that have to be done. This person 
whoever this unknown person is, would ask Jesus one of the most powerful questions, are few people going to be saved? So this person has eternity in mind. Church, let me ask you an honest-to-God question. How often do you think about death? You know, today our lives, we become so caught up, so busy, so distracted, that our minds become so preoccupied with schedule. I got so much on my calendar. I got to do this, and I got to do that, and this person needs me, and I got to finish this project. We have so much going on at work. We have money we need to make because we have bills we have to pay because we have houses we need to live under, food to put on the table. We have appointments to go to. We have kids we have to raise. We have plans we have to make. We have obligations we have to go to. We have stress in our lives because of all of these things. And because of the stress of all of these things we're busy with, we have to therefore de-stress so our minds are filled with how am I going to release the stress? We should plan a vacation. Let's just go to the beach. Why don't we go up north to the mountains? Let's just do this and let's just do that. We just need some time. I need hobbies. I need to de-stress because life is busy. Amen? Life is busy. It's busy. It's so busy that I believe rarely do people have Death in mind. Maybe, maybe once in a while, but rarely do people have death in their mind. They're really so busy. You're not really thinking about the afterlife. You're not thinking about eternity. You're not even thinking about heaven or even hell. Maybe you think about death as you get older. And you may not think it's going to happen, but it happens. You get older. And I look at my wife who's 10 years younger than me, and I cannot move like she does. It takes me longer. I know I may look young and handsome, but I'm almost 40 years old. But you realize that as you look, and your kids think they're going to live young forever. But the problem is, as you get older, which happens, maybe you think about death because your hair gets grayer. Or gravity takes its toll and things start hanging more. Skin get wrinkles. And you don't have the energy you once had. You can't even walk up the stairs without making all these noises. Ooh, ah, ugh. You know you're old if they say, hey, let's go. You say, give me a minute. Can I get a witness? You're old. And you start thinking about death. Maybe, God forbid, you get a phone call. The doctor wants to see you and tells you it's cancer. Or sickness that you have in your body that's irreversible. And instantly you start thinking about death. But rarely 
do people actually have death in mind? Like this man or woman did that asked Jesus. Because we get so busy and caught up with everything in our lives, we're not thinking about the fact that this world that we're so busy in is temporary. This world that has your undivided attention and time and energy and money and everything you give to this world right now is not forever. Do you ever think about that? And God gives us the choice in the Bible. You can be rich towards God, meaning prioritize and live for the Lord, or you can live for this world. You can't do both. But here's the truth about life. It's fast. And it ends. Look at James 4.13 with me. And it's a warning that James writes. And he says, come now. He says, listen. You who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such city. We're going to spend a year there. We're going to buy. We're going to sell. We're going to make profits. Let's hold that verse for a moment. This person is obviously busy. And I don't know who they're talking to, but they're talking like they have the rest of their lives. And they're saying, hey, we're, that today let's do this, and tomorrow we're going to do this, and, and let's just buy so we can sell it and turn it around, and let's flip it and make more money, and let's make profits so we can buy more, sell more, make more, buy more, sell more, make more. So let's go buy this so we can sell that and we can make more to buy this. And it's an endless rotation of busy and working and stress and planning and scouting and calendars and schedule. Let's do this. I can't do this today. I got to do this tomorrow. Can we, are we on for tomorrow? Yeah, I can do tomorrow, but maybe not. Let's pencil you in for next week. This person is obviously busy. Come now, you who say today, tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such city. Let's go on vacation here. That sounds great. Let's go, let's just spend a year there. Let's buy. Let's sell. Let's make profits. And look at verse 14. Whereas, you don't know what will happen. Say it with me. Tomorrow. You don't know what will happen. Tomorrow. Let's pause that verse. God is saying clearly that you and I do not possess the ability to know what tomorrow may bring. It's impossible. And God says, not only do you not know what will happen tomorrow, but here's a powerful question. He said, what is your life? What's your life about? It's a vapor that appears for a little time. A little time. Say that with me. A little time. And then you vanish 
God says, you're on this earth for a little time. And during that little time that you have, you just don't know when that time is going to come up. When that time is going to run out. When that time is going to end. In fact, there's a man that Jesus speaks about in the Bible. He tells a story of a man that was planning and he's buying and he's selling and he's making profits and he says, I'm going to buy a bigger house. I'm going to build a bigger barn. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And God stops him and says, you fool, you foolish person, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. This very night, you're going to die. And who's going to get all those things you work for? And God calls this man a fool because he was so busy and caught up in this earthly life that he did not even care about his eternity. He did not care about Jesus. He did not care about hell or heaven, repentance, sin, the afterlife. He was only living for this world. And God says it clearly. You are like a vapor. You appear, but you're here for a little time. You're here for a little time. In fact, he then goes on to say in verse 15, Instead, you ought to say, If it's the Lord's will, we shall live and do this and do that. Here's the difference. Let me make a thing clear here. God is not against busy. We all get busy. There's busyness in ministry. There's busyness in family. There's busyness at work. God is not preaching against being busy. God is not against planning. You should plan. You should plan to go to work tomorrow. Don't say, oh, I'm not going to work because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Might as well not go to work. You will be fired. Plan. Plan your vacations. Plan your retirement. Plan your life. Work. Work hard. Be busy. Be a little stressed. That's life. That's common. But here's what God is against. God is saying, what I am against is a person that plans and works so much and is so busy, but does not live for my will. That word will literally means desire. You have no desire to live for the desires of God. So what God is against is people that are so busy, they have no desire for what God desires. They have no desire for God. They have no desire to serve the Lord. They have no desire to do the will of God. They don't want to live for the will of God. They don't think about the, the will and the desires of God because all they're thinking about is their will, their own life, their self, their life, their plans, their agenda, their schedule. I don't have time to think about God. I don't have time to think about church and the Bible and prayer and all of that. I have no time for that. You have no time for God? That's what God is against. 
people who become so busy, they don't live for the will of God. The desires of God. And God says clearly, time is running out. You are here for a little time. You're here for a little time. A little time. The most common phrase for busy people, you probably know it, I bet you can fill the sentence. I have so much to do and there you go. I have so much to do and so little time. That statement is true. And that statement could be your downfall. Just flip it over. I have such little time, but I have so much to do. And when you die without Jesus Christ and you're facing eternity and hell forever, do you think God's going to care that you say, the thing is, God, I, I had you did not give me enough time, but I had so much to do. And if I had more time, I would have given you my life. I would have served you. I would have believed in your son, Jesus. I would have repented of my sin. But God, the thing is, I have so much to do and so little time. But when you die, you will have all of eternity and all of the time in the world to think about what you put before God. Be careful that you don't get so caught up in this insignificant world that you have no desire for the will of God. This is what eternity looks like in life. Like an hourglass. The second you're born, you're dying. Don't wait for a doctor to tell you you're dying. Let me tell you all right now, you're dying. You're dying. All of us, wouldn't you agree? You're dying. The second you're out of your mama's womb, guess what? You and I were dying. The question is when it will happen. How it's going to happen. But the question is not, will it happen? You're going to die. Time doesn't go up. It doesn't go backwards. You age. Time is running out. But I want you to look at this differently. I want you to imagine now with me that you are just one of these little grains of sand. You're in this world. This is the earth. This is the world. This is your life. None of you can tell me at what specific time will one little grand enter the other side. But you know it's going to happen. You are just like this little grand of sand. 
God puts you on this world. He puts you on this earth for a little while. And some people go before others. Some people go, they say, before their time. Not true. Because God has set before you how much time you're going to have on this earth. And it's unfortunate when a child or a young person or teenager dies. But don't ever utter the words, they died too soon. They died before their time. No, they died at the exact time God said they would die. Some die before others. Some die young. Some die middle-aged. Some die older. Some die young, old, rich, poor, borderline poverty. Republicans die. Democrats die. Independents die. Everyone dies. Everyone dies. The question is when. Do you realize like a grain of sand, God has put you on this earth and the time will come that your time runs out. And God says your time is coming up. It's coming up short. And before you know it, everyone will pass. Everyone will go to another side. That's you. That's me. Can I tell you what eternity looks like? You want to know? You ready? Ready? Say ready, Pastor. Here's eternity. Eternity. Time stops. No, there is no time in eternity. You are here forever. Forever. There's no going to the other side. There's no, oh, let me visit my mom and dad. Like some people, no, listen. We'll get into this detail next week in, in our health series, part four. But God says when it comes to eternity, there's a wall. There's no going back. There's no God, I was wrong. God, I'm sorry. God, give me a chance. God, I'll re give me a redo. Lord, please give me another chance. No, there isn't none of that. Time stops. And you'll have all the time in the world. And then some. To think about why you did not serve Jesus. It's forever. You and I will pass through. And it will be all over. But to answer the question that this person had, Jesus, how many will be saved? How many will not? Jesus answers the question in Matthew 7, 13 through 14. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, 
For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Talking about hell. And there are what? Say it with me. There are what? Many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are what? Few who find it. Jesus doesn't give an exact number, but he gives a measurement, a way. Jesus literally says, when it comes to hell, and it comes to eternity, and when it comes to heaven, few people, just like this, few people will be in heaven with you. And many people will be in hell. Many people will be on the broad way to destruction. Many people will die without knowing Jesus. And these many people could be you here this morning. To answer the question plainly, Jesus said, very few people are saved. But many people are lost. And Jesus says, narrow is the way that leads to life. See, when Jesus talks about a narrow gate, it's literally a door so small that only one person can fit. And the reason Jesus says the narrow gate leads to life is because Jesus was literally saying, I am the one and only person that can give you life and eternity in heaven. And even Jesus said boldly, it's a narrow way. Only one person can get through. And that person can get through only by me, Jesus. I am the one person. Jesus is the only one that was sinless. Jesus is the only one that died and rose sinless. Jesus is the only way to God the Father. Look at with me, John 14, 6. Jesus said it clearly. Jesus said, I am the what? I am the way. I'm the truth. I am the life. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus did not say no one comes to the Father except through me and you got to go to church. No one comes to the Father except through me, and you gotta give a lot of money. No one comes to the Father except by me, but you better, you know, be the best person you can be on earth. No one comes to the Father except by me, unless your grandmama was saved, and maybe I'll consider it. Jesus said it clearly. No one on earth can come to Jesus. No one can cross over to heaven, but this middle point. That middle point is Jesus. All of us are here, dead in our sins. All of us deserve hell. All of us deserve to be on the broad way to destruction. But Jesus came down from heaven to earth because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus died for your sins on the cross. Jesus came in the middle and divided sin and life. Death and life. 
And Jesus said, I stand in the middle between life and death, eternity and heaven and hell, and no one can come through the Father but by me. Want to hear something crazy? It's not in my notes. This is God talking to me. I just noticed as I held it how narrow this middle is. So narrow that only one grain of sand can fit in. It's a compliment when people call Christians narrow-minded. I've been called that a few times. You're so narrow-minded. Only Jesus? Yes. You're so narrow-minded. Yes, I am. So was Jesus. You know, Oprah says, eventually all roads, she does this too, all roads lead to heaven. And I said, Oprah, you're going to hell. She believed that. It's beautiful. All roads lead to heaven. Might be nice. Wishful thinking. So far from the Word of God. You want to be saved? You got to be narrow minded. Only Jesus can save. Don't think when you stand between heaven and hell, judgment, God, life and death, and you're in the middle, you're going to tell God, oh, I'm going to get through through my good works. Because even Ephesians tells us it's not by works that you're saved, but by grace. It is a gift from God. A gift you and I don't deserve, but God offers it. My question is, will you receive it? Well, don't say, well, okay, it's not by works, but it's not by people either. A lot of people say, well, I, I, I know I'm saved because my grandmother was saved. I think that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, honestly. You think you're going to go to heaven because your grandmother was saved? You know, I did an ancestry test not too long ago, and my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was Nigerian. I'm not about to put a, a dashiki on. Listen, I'm not saying, I'm not. I'm not about to, hey, yeah, yeah, that's me. No, I'm not. My identity is not in my past, my, my ancestors, my relatives. My, the Bible says you will have to give an account for yourself. So stop this nonsense. My family's saved. My grandma's saved. My brother, my sister's saved. Listen, they might be. You're not. Some people say, well, I'm going to get through by the merit of God's goodness. How can a good God send people to hell? I'm glad you asked that. Because God is a good God, He has to be a good judge. And ju God judges righteousness. And God says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of eternal life found in Jesus. You know, suppose you have to go to a courtroom because someone committed this 
awful offense to you and you want to see this person go to jail the rest of their life, you're there in the stands, you're testifying, you're sitting down, it's the judgment day, you're excited because you know the judge is going to throw the book at him. Yeah, he's going to go to prison, justice, finally. And the judge says, you know what? Um, Because I'm a loving, kind person, I'm not going to punish you at all. You're free to go. Would you not say, wow, this is not a good judge? But see, God is a good judge. And he's also a loving God. And God says sin has to be punished, but because I love you, I'm going to transfer that punishment over to my son Jesus, and if you believe and trust in him, I will get you into heaven based on the merit of what my son did on the cross. Do not think for a moment that you will go to heaven on the merit of the goodness of God and His love. Jesus said, God is the way that leads to destruction in many. Jesus said, many are in heaven. That didn't shock me. I look at the world we live in today. It doesn't shock me that the majority of people are lost. Amen? In fact, maybe the majority of people you know are lost. What scares me as your pastor is wondering, are you among those many that come to church I come to forward, sing the songs, but you really don't know Jesus. Because what shocks me about what Jesus said was not that many people are lost, but that many of those people are people that thought they were saved. Look at verse 21 through 23 of Matthew 7. Jesus said first, many will go to hell. And then he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will, the desires, that lives for the desires of God. It's a clear evidence that you're saved. Your desires are not for this world anymore. Your desires are for God. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, say that with me. Many. You see, Jesus says many will go to hell, then the second time he mentions the word many, he's talking about people that think of hell. He's not talking about people that we generally, typically just say, oh, they're going to hell. He's not talking about murderers and rapists and communist dictators and Hitler and Castro and all the people we think, yeah, they got a front row seat to hell. You know, Jesus will shock you. He's saying, you really want to know the majority of people in hell? Not those people. It's the many that thought they were saved. Many will say to me in that day, 
The day of what? The day of judgment, either when Christ returns, or the day of your death, when time runs out. Lord! Lord! Didn't we prophesy? That word prophesy sounds fancy, it literally means speak the word of God. Didn't I teach the word of God? Didn't I lead a Sunday school, a small group? Didn't I prophesy? Didn't I speak the word of God in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not do many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them the three most frightening words you will ever hear in eternity. I never knew. I never knew. Knew what? This out of fourth word. I never knew. Knew. Here's another three words that's frightening. Depart from me. That word know in the Greek literally means to know someone not by information, but by relationship. When I first met Jericho, my wife, I got to know her. I was gaining access to information. That information that I got from her, though hot, though lovely, though exciting, did not mean I entered into a relationship with her. When I was dating her, that did not mean we were in a relationship. We were in an agreement. But it wasn't until I married that woman on the front row that I entered into a relationship with her. And all my married people know, you think to know a person until you marry them. Amen? Some of you are dating Jesus. It's conditional. If it works out, good. If it doesn't, I'm out. If I'm busy, good. I can, but if I have time, I will. If I'm up for it, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll go. I'll go to church. Yeah, some of you are dating Jesus. You're not married. Marriage is a true commitment and denouncement of your old self. When I married Jerica, my old single sexy self was dead. Over. And my lifestyle changed in reflection to my new commitment. How dare we say we have a relationship with Jesus? No, you just have some information about Him. And God said, many on that day will say to me in my name, did we not prophesy, did we not cast demons and do miracles? And here's what's frightening. If I had someone in this church prophesy, cast out demons and do miracles, I would say, best Christian at four we ever had. Because none of you do any of those three things. So the people that actually died and going to hell are, quote, better Christians than us. That's why you can't judge a person. By their righteous acts. And they said, in your name. How did this person cast demons and prophesy and do miracles 
because they did it in the name of Jesus. And anyone can proclaim the name of Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, even demons tremble. Miracles happen. There is power in the name of Jesus. But anyone can say, let me prove this to you. Because you think this person was a great Christian, this person is a great servant of Christ, but they were as lost as they never imagined. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. He called the twelve, bear with me, twelve, the twelve disciples. He gave them what? Power. He gave them authority over all demons. To cure diseases. Let's pause. He gave them all 12 power to cast out demons and work miracles. Who's included in those 12? Judas. Judas was close to Jesus. Judas heard the sermons. Judas most likely held the hands in prayer. Judas casted out demons. Judas did miracles because the Bible says, I gave all 12 of them authority. But in John 6, 70, Jesus answered them, did I not choose the one, the 12? And one of you is the devil. I've said that a few times about you guys. But what God, you know what, what Jesus meant here was not that Judas was literally the devil. That where you are the devil literally means you belong to him. Does it not frighten you that you can be in church and say sermons and pray and listen to the word and sing and serve in the ministry and do all these wonderful things in Jesus' name and still belong to the devil? And I wonder in this church, the biggest burden that I carry as your pastor is how many of you truly belong to the devil versus how many of you belong to Jesus. Of all the twelve, the one that looked the most saved was Judas. The one they trusted most with the money because of integrity was Judas. But it was a lie. There comes a point that frightens me because I think about our church. I'm not thinking about any other church, but the church God has called me to pastor. And it frightens me because I think of how many times I've asked someone out there, Are you a Christian? And boldly with confidence they say, Yes, I am a Christian. But it's what happens after that shocks me. Yes, I'm a Christian. I go to church. Not, I go to this church as a result of me being a Christian. No, 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 no. Of course I'm a Christian. I go to this church. 
My neighbor said that to me in conversation. I thought I met another brother in the faith and said, Oh, you're a Christian? Yeah, oh, right, great. And I saw these fishy rods in his garage. I'm like, man, I got a Christian friend now that goes fishing. This is awesome. Are you, you're a Christian? Yeah, I, I go to this in this church. And I'm like, ah. Not my friend no more. I'll try though. Keep inviting him. I go to church. Be careful then, church. Don't spend too much time in your garage because you'll become a car. Don't sit too long in the airport. You'll become a plane. Why would you ever think a building that you enter makes you a believer of Jesus Christ? Of course I'm a Christian. I'm baptized. But even fish go underwater. Are they safe too? Baptism is a symbolism. It doesn't save you. Here's a scary one. Of course, I am a Christian. I've been a Christian all my life. Biblically speaking, that's impossible. Impossible. Because Jesus says that you were born in iniquity. You were born a sinner. When you got out of your mama's womb, you belonged to the devil himself. But you contradict the word of God if you ever say, I've been a Christian all my life. If you say, I got born again when I was four years old. Do you understand that four years old, the concept of eternity and morality and sin and death and Christ and redemption? But some cute little Sunday school teacher says, you want Jesus? Pray this prayer. Jesus, love you. Please save me. Amen. And you go your whole life thinking, you're in. I grew up in the church. Do you really think that makes you a true believer? Luke 13, 24. Jesus gets real with him. Luke's account of this narrow gate. He says, strive to enter through the narrow. That word strive, it literally means hard work. You know, he's not saying you got to work hard to get to heaven. He says when you are truly a Christian, it's hard work. It's not easy being saved. You're going to lose some friends. You're going to lose your old life. It's going to cost you when you're a genuine believer. But the cost is worth everything. And see, he says, strive to work through a narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And here's the warning. Once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he will not answer. He will say to you, I don't know you. 
Where are you from? When time runs out, God says, I will shut the door. It's a reference to Genesis. When God was about to bring judgment to the world. But God did not just bring the flood. He warned of the flood. He would use Noah. And we emphasize this. We always think that Noah just built an ark and saved himself. No. The Bible says in the book of Peter that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And it took 120 years to build that ark. So while people were living their lives without the Lord, not caring about serving God, had no desire to serve the Lord, living for their pleasures, living for themselves, partying, drinking, just living all these horrible, sinful lifestyles, they did not care. But every day for 120 years, Noah would preach to the people about the Lord and repentance. Every day he built the ark, he would preach to the people and preach to the people and preach to the people for 120 years. And when the time came and time was up and Noah got into the ark, the Bible says that God himself closed the door. And judgment came. Do you not think that the second that rain fell and the water levels rose, that the people banged at that door saying, please let us in. We'll change. Forgive us now. We won't do it again. We promise. Don't you think they begged? And don't you think they bargained? Many people, Jesus said, are going to bang at that door in eternity, begging God, please let me in. I'll change. I'll go to church now. I'll pray now. I'll be a better person. I won't sin anymore. I'll give my life to Jesus. I'll give you everything, Lord. Please, please, God. And Jesus says, you will not be able to go in. He'll say, I never knew This week, Jerrica had a bunch of groceries in her hands. She's running down the driveway. I see her through the window. She says one thing that got my attention. Open up! It's me! And I quickly run and open the door and let her in. Now let some stranger run to my house and say, Open up! It's me! You think I'm going to say, oh, come this way. No, I'm going to keep that door shut, look out the window, and say, who are you? I don't know you. Oh, pastor, that's so judgmental. That's so narrow. Why don't you let him in? I don't know him. Don't get mad at God if you die without Jesus Christ and you're facing eternity in hell and God says, I don't know who you are. Both the door will close. Now as we close, I want you to really think about this. Am I really saved? Is this real for me? Or will I be a part of the many who think they're saved? 
who went to church, who sang a few songs, who fellowshiped and ministered and served? Will I be a part of the many who thought I knew Jesus? Think about it. Because all of you will make a decision today for Jesus. You will either say no, not for me. You will either say yes, Lord, I will enter through you and only you. Or you would say, Pastor, I've already done that. And I'm making a decision to live with thankfulness every day because I am part of the few. What your will, your decision. My biggest burden is not how much of the Bible you know, how well you sing, how much you give. My biggest burden is of the many that are lost, how many have come and gone to this church? How many are here right now? And they're lost. Matthew 7, 15, Jesus says, be aware. He says, be careful. Matthew 17, Jesus said, Matthew 7, sorry, verse 15. He says, beware of false prophets. In the same chapter of lost people thinking they're saved, it says, be careful of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're wrapped in swords. Now, I want you to pause that for a second because Jesus said, be careful of false prophets. The word false there literally means someone who acts. And when he's talking about sheep, he's talking about Christians. So therefore, he says, be careful. You're simply not acting like a Christian. Notice he says they put on sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. They put on sheep's clothing. The word clothing is a Greek word that literally means it's pronounced enduma. And Duma in the Greek literally is an outer garment, a jacket, you might say, not garment. Can you imagine that your, your shirt is filthy and dirty and disgusting, and rather than changing it, you just put a jacket on over it and convince yourself, I'm clean now, I'm good now, but you will know the truth that on the inside of that jacket, you are still filthy and dirty and disgusting. You just put an outer garment. And Jesus is saying many people are just acting. They put on this outer garment of Christianity. They go to church. They hold the Bible. They say amen. They sing the song. They close their eyes. They raise their hands. They give the tithe. They serve in the ministry. They say, hi, brother. How, sister? How art thou? I read King James. I do this. I do that. And they make this outer appearance of Christianity. But he says it's just an act. It's just a little jacket you put on on Sunday morning because you're going forward. 
But Monday through Saturday, you're a little wolf. Living in the world, still in sin, nothing about you has changed. When I realized that Jesus is warning about people that act, and he's talking about people that are on the Broadway to help, I realized and said, Lord, do I have actors on Broadway? Did you know that you might be a Broadway actor? You're on the road to hell, but you just act like a Christian. I thought about Broadway in New York. It's just a, a stage. It's just performance. But it's not real. This might be you too. Well, Pastor, how do I really know? It's hard to tell because I, I want to serve God. I go to church and do all of it. In the same chapter, in verse 19 and 20 of Matthew, Jesus said, Matthew 7, 19, that every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. That fire he's talking about is hell. And next Sunday, we're going to go into deep detail about the hell Jesus is talking about. Don't miss it. You see, when Jesus talked about the fire of hell, he would, you know, people say, oh, hell is just a metaphor. Hell is just a man-made idea. If hell is a metaphor, why did Jesus say, it's better to get a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the ocean than it is to go to hell? doesn't sound like a metaphor to me. If hell is a man-made idea, why did God say it's better to cut your legs and your arm and your eyes off than to go to hell? Hell is a literal place of fire, separation from God, total absence of the presence of God, pain, agony, both physically and emotionally. There's loneliness in hell. And in this very hell, there are people that thought they were a part of the few that were saved. Jesus says, by your fruit, you'll recognize me. See, when Jesus is truly inside you, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. When Jesus is truly inside you, there's growth that changes who you used to be. I used to be a seed, but now I am a tree. There is complete transformation. Your values change. You don't value what you used to. Your desires change. It's no longer about you. Your desires are for the desires of God. Your attitude changes. Your behavior changes. Your lifestyle changes to honor that of God, to mimic that of Jesus' attitude. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means that you're striving to be every day more and more like Jesus as you grow and walk in your relationship with Him. But you're different. If you say you're a Christian, but nothing about you has changed. Be careful. Because the evidence of a true believer is shown in how different they are from the world. Well, how different is different? Look at 1 Peter 4, 1 through 5. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourself with the same attitude he had. 
and get ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physical for Christ, you have finished with sin. You're finished with sin when you're a Christian. Not that you're not going to sin. It means that you no longer live for sin. I'm done with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires. You're the first thing. I'm pursuing the will of God now, not mine. Lord, I'm living for you. You're first. You're center of my life. It's not about me anymore. You don't spend the rest of your life like before Jesus. You can care less about the desires of God. But after Jesus, after true repentance of sin and transformation, you're now thinking about, Lord, I want to live to please you every day. My desires change. You will be anxious to do the will of God. You've had enough in the past of evil things that godless people enjoy. It amazes me how many people say they're Christians, but they're still plunging in to the old ways of life they used to enjoy. If you have joy in the evil things that the world does, you cannot be saved. That used to give you joy. Oh, sleeping around, that used to give me joy. Getting drunk and crazy, that used to give me joy. Laughing it up with my ungodly friends. Profanity, pornography, the world, everything, that used to bring me joy. But when I realized the truth of Jesus Christ, I realized how miserable that lifestyle is. That even if I try to step into it, I no longer feel like the same I used to. I just don't enjoy it anymore. not the same. It doesn't feel the same. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in you bringing conviction. You've had enough. God says you've had enough of that life. Why? Go back to it. You've had enough of the immorality, the lust, the feasting, the drunkenness, the wild party, and their terrible worship of idols. Oh, of course, your former friends. They're surprised when you no longer plug into the flood of wild and destructive things. They do. Did you notice it says former friends? Because when you're truly a believer in Jesus Christ and you have friends that want to try to bring you down and back with them, you say, you're no friend of mine anymore. Because I'm living for Jesus. And I'm shocked at how many true believers, how many friends they lose along the way. Amen. It's a good thing. But you say you're Christian, and you got all your friends around, and you're still there laughing it up and kicking it, and nothing's changed. Exactly. Nothing has changed. And they think it's they're surprised. What, what do you mean you're not going to do this anymore? You used to remember that. You remember those days? Yeah, that's not me anymore. If you want, you can come to church. Church? No, 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 no. Sunday about a playa. Whoa, what's wrong with you? No, 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 it's not me anymore. You got to come to church. Oh, you're so weird. Bro, mira que fumamos. Crazy. Man, look at this. And they slander me. Oh, they think they're better. Look at little Jesus. 
think you're better than me? You're such a hypocrite. I remember back in the day, now look at you, little holy roller. You're no better than they slandered you to the point that they're born. Don't lie to yourself. 1 John 1, 6 and 7. For we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. One of the evidence that you're not saved is you might say you have fellowship and relationship with God but you go on living. That word living really means a practice of lifestyle of sin. You go on living in darkness but not practicing the truth. The word practicing literally means lifestyle. You make a lifestyle of living for Jesus. But if we are living in the light of God is the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us of all. Look at your lifestyle. You have a lifestyle of chasing the world and chasing God. You have a lifestyle of chasing sin or chasing righteousness. If you say you have fellowship with God, yet you walk in darkness, you lie and deceive yourself, Jesus says, you know, the truth is, you say one thing, but you walk another. You're lost. And I think about how many people came to, through these churches and this church in particular too and said and said and said, we're saved, we're Christians, and they sang the songs, they served them, and they did all of that, but now they're back in the world, back in the sin, back in their old lifestyle. And God says they left us because they were never a part of us. They were never truly saved. That's why Matthew 7, 22 Jesus finishes it with this strong statement about the narrow and the wide gate. Many will say to you, many, many in hell will say to you, Lord, Lord, and we prophesy in your name, and your name cast out demons in the name to many ones in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who are. See that? Practice. He made a practice of lifestyle of sin. And I pray that when we face eternity, that the few that are saved in heaven with Jesus. Are people that make forward fellowship with Are people that I pastor. People that I preach to through the grace of God. People that sat in this service and said, Pastor David, thank you. Because I thought I was saved, but I realized that I never went through the narrow gate that was Jesus Christ. And I want to see all of us here. But I don't want to say, man, where, where's so-and-so? 
and you're actually over here. Which Jesus said, will be weak and gnashing angry at themselves for wasting their time on what couldn't save Let's bow our heads and pray today in reverence. No one stand up, no one go to the bathroom. In reverence to the word of God today for those around you today for the important message. I'm not asking you. Do you go to church? Do you pray? Do you read your Bible? Are you a good person? Do you try? I'm asking you today, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when your time runs out, you will be the few in heaven because you have repented of your sin. You have turned to Jesus and only Jesus and entrusted your life and eternity in Him. If you're saying yes, Pastor, give me peace of mind. Show me your hand. Be honest. God bless you. God bless you. Every head bow, every head close today. Many, many could not raise that hand. I admire the honor. Why? Today is the day of salvation, brothers. Today you can be sure of your salvation. Or you can continue to be an actor on God, putting on the Christianity, being ever so long. But if you want to be sure today, Jesus stands in between life and death, heaven and hell. And he stands on eternity and says, which way will you? This is you today, you're saying, Pastor. I'm not sure that I'm saved. I go to church and do everything that I think I'm lost. I want to be sure. I know I have not been living for Jesus. The evidence of my life does not show true salvation. But today I want to give my life to Jesus. Acknowledging that I am He is the only way to God the Father. And I want to repent of my sins and turn to Jesus. That's you today. Can you put that hand up? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Lord, don't be ashamed. God bless you. I'm here today. Let's all stand for you. That's you today. Would you just pray today? Not the prayer that saves you. It's the acknowledgement, the confession, the agreement that you are a sinner. Turning your ways to Jesus. Asking Him to forgive you of your sin. And I promise you at that moment, you 
become born again a new creation. You'll begin to see the growth and the change and the desire to change and the life change. That's you today. Let me lead you in this prayer. You pray from your heart. This is, you don't have to say the exact words that you Would you tell the Lord right now what's in your heart? Just say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I thought I would say. Thank you, Jesus, for showing me the truth as my time is running. Lord, today, I ask you to save me, forgive me, and I acknowledge that I am sin, and believe that you, Jesus, are the only way to God the Father. And I put my faith and my trust in you for all the truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, give God some praise today. You guys can have a seat. I pray that you guys were blessed by that message today of part three of our health series. You guys been enjoying the health series so far? Yes, I know this one's an important one. If you guys know anyone that needs to hear a message like this one, just go to our podcast, go to our website, click sermon, and just send it to them. You'll be surprised. I love to see how God is speaking, not just on Sunday mornings here, but outside of this church, through the internet. So many people, whether it be our podcast, or YouTube channel, or whatever, are listening to the Word of God, and we're seeing God do amazing things. It's so crazy that I hear people tell me, hey, I heard you, I, I heard you online, and they don't even go to our church, and some of them weren't even Christians, but they're listening. I don't know why, maybe they're searching. But make sure you guys pass this message on to someone that you know might not be a part of the community. 